Now, in case you had forgotten what was announced last week, you might have remembered this morning when you received your teaching outline, and it wasn't actually an outline. It was just a generic page with lines on it for you to take notes. And this morning, three members of our pastoral care team will take turns giving sermonettes, messages that the Lord has put on our hearts to share with you uh, this morning. Uh, we've put lines on the handout to reduce the, the temptation to doodle. It's, dif- it's difficult to doodle in the lines. So we, we would encourage you to take notes as, as uh, you feel led to uh, jot things down. And so I have the privilege of going first, and also the greatest burden, because Pastor Kyle promised it wouldn't go three hours. So I have my timer here. I'm going to set it when I start. And I've asked Eva to start waving her arms around if I go over. There we go. So my time begins now. So the, 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 me- the title of this morning's message for this portion is Discerning the Mark of the Beast. And we will be in the book of Revelation Chapter 13. Now, we've all had different experiences growing up. Some good, some bad, some ugly. Some may relate to this particular anecdote that I'm going to share. As a young, young child, adults in my life tried to get me to do things that I didn't want to do. And oftentimes, they would invoke the name of the boogeyman. Eat your broccoli, or the boogeyman's going to get you. Go clean up your room, or the boogeyman's going to get you. Get in bed and stay in bed, or the boogeyman's going to get you. I've had older cousins do that and terrify me at a young age. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is that it doesn't end when we grow up and become adults. You might, you might relate to this. We're warned, vote for a liberal or fascism's going to get you. Vote for a conservative or communism's going to get you. Better say these things about these people or you'll be a racist. You better defy authority or you're going to lose your freedom. And in the pandemic, fear, fear, fear of the virus, fear of the vaccine, fear of everything and everyone. Every TV commercial operates with the same premise buy our product, use our service, or you'll miss out on life. Your life will be less than because you don't have our product. It's fear. There's actually an acronym to describe this. It's called FOMO. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. And it's not a new concept. It's popular today with social media 
and Instagram and Facebook. People post pictures and stories, and other people are watching and like, I'm missing out. I'm missing out on that perfect hamburger that somebody posted a picture of. I'm missing out on this wonderful sunset. It's cloudy where I am. It's not a new concept. It originated in the Garden of Eden. The serpent tempted Eve with FOMO. He said, you know, you should eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you don't, you're going to miss out being like God. That's what the enemy uses. Enemy uses doubt, uncertainty, and fear. Those are the three tools he's used from the beginning of time and will use until the Lord returns. Stirring up fear is the most effective means for manipulating people. And we all know 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of the sound mind. Jesus regularly encouraged his disciples, fear not, don't be afraid. So anything or anyone who traffics and promotes fear is promoting an anti-Christ agenda. Because God's agenda is not fear. It's power, love, and a sound mind that all point to his glory. Now, the world tries to manipulate Christians with fear. Don't do this or don't do that. Why? It's the mark of the beast. They traffic in fear and use the one thing that is very tangible and evident in Scripture that points to a future event. Now, over the years, many have claimed that the mark of the beast has come. I'm going to list off a few of them. You may be familiar with them. Barcodes were once thought to be the mark of the beast. Social security number. Credit cards. Cell phones. RFID chips. NFC technology. A particular vaccine. Any vaccine. Driver's licenses, temperature scanners, high fructose corn syrup, <laughs> GMO food products, and this one, just Costco membership card. <laughs> this is just a partial list of what people have claimed was the mark of the beast. Now, could some of these technologies be the precursor to the mark? Yeah, but these things aren't actually the mark. The Model T Ford is the precursor to the Formula One racer, but the Model T Ford is still a Model T, and it can't go 200 miles an hour. So why, why do so many people ring the alarm bell of something being the mark of the beast? the most charitable conclusion I can draw is they have not read their Bible. 
So we're going to do that this morning. So if you would, please open up your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. We're going to read through the entire chapter. It's all important. Revelation, chapter 13, starting in verse 1. This is the Apostle John writing what the Lord has shown him. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, I need to pause there. As many of you are familiar with, book of Revelation has a lot of symbolism, imagery, figures of speech. There were also some literal things. Many, many times in Revelation, the imagery is explained in other parts of the book. So here we see the dragon. And to it, the dragon. Now, if we were to just flip back to the previous chapter, chapter 12, verse 9, it describes that the dragon is Satan. So there's no need to kind of do a study or figure out, just Scripture explaining Scripture. So, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. You need to pause there a moment, too. He's going to battle believers at the time that he appears, and he's going to win in, the, in that temporary moment. That's what Scripture says. He's going to conquer them. And authority was given over, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation worldwide. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This first beast is what we refer to as Antichrist. And we'll read on. Verse 11, then I saw, and that word then is important, and you can underline that word because it implies a sequence. Then I saw another beast. This happens after the first beast appears. Rising out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. 
It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Another pause there. Here we see worship of the image. But in verse 8, it was the beast himself to be worshipped. There's no reference to an image. So again, showing that there's a chronological sequence of the first beast and then the second beast. Verse 16, also it, the second beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And this second beast is who we refer to as the false prophet. So we see here in chapter 13, there's a sequence of events. And they have to happen in a particular order. Before the mark of the beast appears. And so there's a, a, a series of four questions that we can ask to help discern what is the mark of the beast, or has it appeared. So we're going to start with question one, and consider each question. And as soon as we reach a question where the answer is no, then we stop. Because whatever we think the mark of the beast is, it isn't. These sequence of questions need to be answered in the affirmative. The first question, is the Antichrist, the first beast, present? If yes, who is he? Is he saying and doing things that Scripture said he would do? Got to answer that question first. Is Antichrist present? The next question, if that's a yes, is the false prophet, the second beast, present? If yes, who is he? He's going to be a public figure. No one's going to be left wondering, is, is he the false prophet? Is, everyone will know. Not that he's false, but he's a prophet. Is he saying and doing things that Scripture said he would say and do? Has he performed signs and wonders? Has he called fire down from heaven in front of people? That's what Scripture says. That's going to be a sign. So that's a tangible sign that we can look at. So is the Antichrist present? Is the false prophet present? Has the image, the third question, has the image of Antichrist been created? If so, did the false prophet oversee its construction? Because that's what Scripture says. He's going to oversee this. He's going to organize it. He's going to be the, the project manager for creating this image. 
and are people required to worship the image or be killed? Because that's also in Scripture. Sometimes folks will waver between imagery and figures of speech and a literal interpretation and will jump tracks to accommodate their own desire for an interpretation. And we need to be consistent. There are things in Scripture that are literal and will happen. And they need to, and they need to unfold in a literal way. There's some figures of speech, like the dragon, like the beast, that are figures of speech or imagery that will be, they will be revealed in, its, in their physical form. So we have to be consistent. The fourth question has the false prophet led an effort for an international requirement to bear a mark on the right hand or forehead? If so, does this mark contain Antichrist's name or his number? It has to have his name or his number. And is the mark required to buy and sell? And it seems like everything gets reduced down to a simple little element like is everything required to buy and sell? And ignoring everything else in all of chapter 13, it all boils down to that one little fragment of a verse, and that seems to be the reason why anyone will point to something and say, that's the image of the beast, or the mark of the beast. But all of those questions have to be answered in the affirmative in order to consider something to be the mark of the beast. I regularly monitor geopolitical events and advancements in technology and view them through the lens of Bible prophecy. And I know many of you do as well. It's a topic that seems to be coming up more frequently these days, and I think as we get closer to the Lord's return, it's going to even increase even further. I've created a little pocket guide to the book of Revelation that unfolds so that at any moment I can have a conversation with someone about the events to happen. If anyone would like a copy of that, I can send them a PDF and you can do your origami and fold it the right way. And you could have that too. It's helpful because it kind of points uh, index into the book of Revelation on these various topics that always seem to come up in conversation. So if you're interested in that, please, please let me know. But we have to look at Scripture. It's our authority. And there's a warning. False and frequent claims of identifying the mark of the beast are harmful to the spread of the gospel and actually help set the stage for the acceptance of the real mark. Let me explain. When we point at cell phones and say, that's the mark of the beast, and it proves not to be, then when we go share the, the, the truth, the gospel message of Jesus Christ with that person that we told them, well, my cell phone is the mark of the beast, don't use it, they're going to say, you are wrong about the mark. Are you wrong about salvation? Why should I trust you about what you're saying is true here if what you're saying there turns out to be false? So we have to be careful. And I've said this Many times, there is a growing movement of a flat-earth society made up of many Christians. This is not helpful to the cause of Christ, so we need to be discerning 
about what we say is the mark of the beast. Some of you might be familiar with Aesop's fable, the shepherd boy who cried wolf. You remember that? The shepherd boy would always cry, there's a wolf, there's a wolf, there's a wolf, and never, he was just drawing attention to himself. And then one day there really was a wolf who was on the prowl, and no one listened to him, and he was killed. If we keep pointing to things as the mark of the beast that aren't, when the true mark comes, no one will, know, no one will believe that that is the mark. So we need to be discerning. We need to be careful. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much in Jesus' name for your holy written word, infallible and authoritative. Lord, you have determined what you would have in your written word. Thank you that you didn't leave us wondering, but we can be confident we have something assured about what your plan is for the future. Lord, uh, we, our hearts are quickened to, for your return. We desire to see you return and to see your kingdom unfold here on earth. But in the meantime, we need to be good stewards of your word. So, Lord, please minister to our hearts through the uncertainty of, of trying times and unknown times. We know that you are sovereign and in control of all things, and your plans and purposes will unfold exactly as you intended. So help us to be messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ in a time that is growing darker and colder, and the love of many is growing cold. In that, through those efforts, through the power of your Holy Spirit, as we share the gospel, many would come to Christ. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tom. If you would, please turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 28. Philippians chapter 1, 18 to 28. While you're turning there, try to think of the, the acronym FOCUS, the word FOCUS. Let's begin at the second half of verse 18. <clears throat> yes, I will rejoice, for I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is far more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side 
for the faith of the gospel. So, the acronym FOCUS. Paul the Apostle, through the Holy Spirit, gives us an idea how this focus looks like in his letter to the Philippian church. Now look again at this amazing imagery of this particular verse, again, the second half of verse 27. Let's look at that. That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit. Community, right? Community based on God. But I actually want to be a little lighthearted, if you don't mind. When I think of community, I always think of those, you know, those little yellow, cute, cylindrical, animated creatures called minions? The young people know, right, Judah? If you're older like me, you probably could think of Pokey and Gumby. But the community of those little guys, you know, just doing their little task and falling over each other, and somehow they get through it in their community. Maybe not so much with Gumby and Pokey. So some of you are thinking, well, Joe, how could you compare us, the community, how could you compare us with these animated creatures or these figures of clay? Come on, Joe. Well, Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthian church, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the all-surpassing power does not belong to us, but to God. Amen? See, we don't want to take ourselves too seriously. So standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel. So the, the acronym F, a focus, F, the faith of the gospel. This is the most dangerous thing that we can twist or complicate, even as believers. Yes, I do mean we. We're guilty as well. But thank the Lord. He is growing us. There is a process. Let's review what Paul said in verse 25 here. What did he say? Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. But what can kill our joy in the faith? The twisting of the purity of the truth of the faith of the gospel. So this is the most dangerous, dangerous and popular lie from the pit of hell. Or sinful man. Mostly in the form of religion. So to keep the gospel, the faith of the gospel, pure in our minds and our hearts, how we speak it, how we live it, really, really takes the grace of God every moment. If we're really honest with ourselves. So Paul makes this clear. He contends for the faith. To the church of Galatia, by the way, in Galatians 1.8, he says, but even if we, we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so we say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning not to allow legalism, human tradition, our own pride, anything that would attempt to add or subtract from the faith of the gospel. Paul continued again to warn the Church of Galatia 
He said, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul the Apostle, by the Holy Spirit, is saying, don't be foolish. Don't be stupid. There's a saying, keep it simple, stupid. It's true. Is Jimmy here? I love it when Jimmy, a brother in our Koinia group, when he confesses. Where's Jimmy at? Raise your hand. He goes, I'm being stupid. He's right. We all can be stupid. So, the faith of the gospel is the grid for all of our for all of our choices, all our activity, all of our thoughts. In the following, following points, our next point, the letter O of focus. O, one another. So, when we're doing life with one another, it's not so much doing so much stuff together. Rather, we're going deeper and deeper into each other's lives, right? I love what Paul said, his prayer statement at the very beginning of this letter in Philippians 1.9. He says this, he says, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. You see how love abounds here? with knowledge and discernment. That's why we should always have discernment when we're not just doing things out of emotion or obligation. It's spirit-led discernment with knowledge. Knowledge on what? Knowledge based on the Word of God. So it's not just being busy with one another doing, doing ministry. It's who we are. Because the love of Christ constrains us, right? It's the love of God, doing life with one another. And our marriages, encouraging one another, the comfort of Christ when someone was sick, or confessing one of our, our sins with one another. That's who we are. The, us elders right now are going through a book called Lead. And it's a great book because it's an eye-opener how well, many churches are falling apart and pastors falling in sin because they're so project-oriented. And how can we lead you if we're not being transparent with one another, confessing our sins, being vulnerable, asking hard questions, how is your marriage? So we don't want to neglect what really it means to do life with one another. Exalting, that's exalting Christ's life, is doing life with one another. The letter C of focus. C, control. He is in control. Thank the Lord for that because we know when we're doing life with one another how complicated, how busy we can get, how overwhelming it is. And I love how this C is so much, is central and sandwiched between the other letters of the acronym because he is majestically in control, isn't he? He is central to all things. We, we must understand this. We can rest in that. Amen. We can rest in that. It makes me think of Mary and, and Martha. Remember that? Martha invited Jesus over her house. She was very anxious in her serving. She was angry with her sister Mary because she wasn't helping. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus resting. How dare she do that? <laughs> but what did Jesus say? He said, Martha, Martha. You're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. 
Mary has chosen the good portion. So we need to hear the Holy Spirit and when he says, hey, rest in me, rest in my feet. Choose what is the good portion. What did Paul also say? He said, he who began a good work will complete it. He is in control. So it's not about us just making it happen. He's in control. Job 42.2, it says, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours could be thwarted. So the business of the Father is not a house of cards resting on us or depending on us. The letter U, unity, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. So just close your eyes for a minute. I'm not getting new agey, okay? Just close your eyes. <laughs> and just imagine you locking arms with your brothers and sisters in Christ or multiple brothers and sisters in Christ. You've been praying for them, spending time with them during their or your illness, giving or receiving the comfort that comes from Christ or locking arms with one another, confessing your sins with one another. Somebody just passed away. You're locking arms with the comfort of Christ. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now open your eyes. Isn't that what it's really about? Isn't it? This is the life of a Christian, of a true Christian. And this is how we can pass through conflict because we all have conflict at times with each other, right? It could, be, it could be personality. It could be secondary doctrinal issues like eschatology, you know, the study of end times. So we need to focus, not to get so caught up, Brother Ed Moody, in eschatology. We differ on the study of end times, eschatology. Brother Ed has the right to be wrong. <laughs> no, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's easy to get past conflict. It's not. It's easier. That's, maybe that's why Paul the Apostle says striving side by side. It takes work. So we've got to know when to put aside dominion opinions. So, the letter S, salvation. Paul stated in 18 and 19, look at that. He says, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He will complete the good work. Salvation, the faith of the gospel, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Just remember, it's the same grace from the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It died on the cross. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. It's that same grace that we desperately need every day, every moment that he's going to be growing us, that we're going to be encouraging one another in our marriages, in our illness, as a body of Christ. So remember that. It's the same grace. So when we're encouraging each other or being encouraging, it's to help of the Spirit of Christ. And it's only by His grace alone that we can receive that encouragement. So remember, don't ever let your heart or your mind take credit. 
It's all by the Spirit, the help of the Spirit of Christ. Don't let your heart glory in that. That's a dangerous place because the Lord is going to do mighty things in us and through us as vessels of clay. Look at verse 20. It, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with the full courage now as always Christ will be honored. He must be honored and glorified always. It's never about us. It's always about him being glorified, whether by life or death. So in closing, Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I give my glory to no other. Father God, we do praise your holy name that you are glorified and we thank you. Thank you, Lord God, for the faith of the gospel. Help us to stay focused as a body. By the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. There we go. Well, brothers and sisters, 15 minutes is hard to, to do. 20 minutes is difficult. Um, and we did promise we weren't going to go over three hours, so I think I've got like an hour and ten minutes left, um, but that's not the case. I will try and uh, hit my mark. Um, I'm really excited to be able to be a part of just these little mini sermonettes, if you will. Um, really, these are the things that the Lord has really uh, placed on our hearts to encourage you guys in. Um, to share with you. And so when I was praying about, well, what, what do I want to share with you? If I've got 15 minutes to be able to share something with the body of Christ here at Canyon Bible Church, what would I want to communicate? And so um, you have to communicate the gospel, um, what we are saved from and what we're saved to. And so that is what I want to share with you uh, over these next few minutes. I'm going to start my timer. Um, I talked through it a couple different times, and it kept on getting longer, so I don't want this one to be even longer yet. So um, let me commit our time to the Lord, and uh, we'll get into it. Father, thanks again for the truth of your word. Thank you for um, the body of Christ. And Lord, I do pray that we would rightly discern um, by your spirit the truth of the word. Lord, that we would walk in it, that we would be focused on the important things and not distracted by secondary uh, or tertiary things. Lord, that we would be faithful um, with what you have given us, uh, Lord, that we would be found faithful in all things as a body of Christ here at Canyon Bible Church. So won't you teach us and continue to do a work in our very hearts this morning. Amen. So as I said, I wanted to just share a few things with you guys this morning. I want to remind us what we're actually saved from. We often um, speak the gospel, we pray through the gospel, and we share the gospel. But um, so often in reality, when it comes to life, um, we say we're, we're living in this new gospel faith. We're, we're living it out, but we stay trapped and we still identify ourselves as to who we were before. And that's why the, the two messages that Pastor Tom shared with us about who we are in Christ, both individually and collectively, is so important for us to recall each and every day. So um, three points today, two questions, and we're going to work through it um, quickly and hopefully uh, in a way that communicates uh, the main points. So firstly, we're saved from our sins, right? That's, that's, no, um, that's nothing new for us to be mind, mindful of. So, but what does this actually mean for me? What does it actually mean for you today? It means that we're saved from the penalty of our sins, right? God's just wrath, we say that word, we say God's just wrath, it means that he was justified to be wrathful. He is a holy God. That means that his ways are right, 
They're accurate. There's no deviation from them. He doesn't change. So we know that what he said in years past and centuries past is still the same for us today, and it will be the same for us as long as he tarries. So we've been saved from the penalty of our sins. God's just wrath, that is, that would have been poured out on us at judgment, right? There will come a time when each person is judged by God, the holy God, the one whose ways are always right. Secondly, we're saved from the bondage to our earthly flesh, right? So we're not only saved from the penalty of our sins, but we're saved from being bound to our earthly flesh. We were hopeless previously to Christ. We were hopeless against the fight of obeying God's will for us. That is, hopeless in living a life of holiness to God. We're saved from our sins. We're saved from the burden and brokenness of our sinfulness. Jesus loosened those chains that we were bound to. He defeated Satan, and he won the victory. He won our victory in Christ Jesus. He's not come to condemn us. Jesus told us this in John 3. So often we stop at John 3.16, but if you continue reading on in that passage, we're told that he didn't come to condemn us, but he actually came to save us. And he came to save us both eternally, so we have that future hope, but we also have a hope for today in Christ Jesus. So we're also saved from the weakness of our fallen flesh. That is that Jesus fully obeyed God. He was the only one, the only man who could possibly and did fully obey everything that God the Father had told us, told him to do, and has commanded us to do as well. Jesus defeated the fallenness of man. That is, the flesh that we were born into was fallen, was sinful, and Jesus overcame that. He lives today victorious over everything. That includes all of our enemies that Tom preached about before, the world, our flesh, Satan himself. He's victorious over our personal weaknesses that we struggle with, right? In Christ, we have victory. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that. There's always a way out. And he's also victorious over our human limitations, right? So in our humanness, we have physical limitations. There's things we can and cannot do. But Christ is the one who keeps on working in us and through us, and he's the one who can be victorious in all of our weaknesses. So those are some of the things that we're saved from. What are we actually saved for? Right? We're saved for personal righteousness, and we're saved, it's almost redundant, it's, we're saved for obedience to God. Firstly, Jesus' substitutionary atoning sacrifice has cleansed us from all our unrighteousness. I'll say that again. That's a a mouthful of a sentence. Jesus' substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Jesus was the substitute. He was on the cross in our place. That sacrifice that he paid for us was an atoning sacrifice, so it means it cleansed us from all of our sinfulness, both past, present, and future. So Jesus was the payment, or that word we often speak of, the propitiation. He was the full payment. Not a partial payment, not a down payment where we need to continue making the rest of the payment still was finally paid off, but he was the payment for our sin debt. The sin debt that was accrued and is accruing as we live. Christ paid for it fully. He was the representative who received the Father's wrath as a complete and final payment for our disobedience, our defiance to the Father and to his will for us. 
It was Jesus who is our representative in heaven today as well, and he's interceding. That means he's representing us before the Father today. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the opportunity to go before the Father in prayer because of Christ and through Christ. What a great praise and rejoicing we have. Titus chapter 2, you can turn there this morning. We're going to be reading some of those passages, some of those verses in Titus 2. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice that it doesn't say Jesus saved us so we could, so we could live forever in heaven apart from suffering. It says that Jesus gave himself He sacrificed himself. He willingly went to the cross for our redemption. He's the one who redeemed us. He's the one who paid the sin debt. He redeemed us from all lawlessness. That is our personal disobedience to God, the Father, his commands for us. He redeemed us that, and he purified us for himself. Right? He didn't purify us for our purposes for our benefit, for our blessing, though it is both of those things. We often talk about the benefits and blessings of what it is to be a Christian. But we were saved for a purpose. And Christ tells us through Paul in his letter to Titus here that we were saved to purify, we were saved to purify for himself a people for his own possession. What does it mean that we were saved for his own possession? Scripture points to the truth that we are not our own, but we, are, we were bought with a price. We are his slaves. The word doulos is the word that is used. It's a bond. It's in our translation, it's referred to as a bondservant. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right? He's purchased us. He's repurposing us to be zealous, right? For good works. What are those good works? It's all the commands that God has given us. It's all the things that as Ephesians 2.10 tells us that he has prepared beforehand, before the foundations of the earth, God has prepared things for us to walk in obedience to, right? And we're mindful of Ephesians 2.10 that it's secondary to the salvation message in verses 8 and 9, that we're saved not as a work and not as a, a result of anything that we have done or that we possibly could ever do, but as a gift from God through faith in Christ Jesus alone. So Jesus has saved us for a purpose. Third point was that Jesus saved us for discipleship. Both ours, right, which is our obedience to righteousness, and the discipleship of others. And this is where the rest of this Titus passage comes in. Jesus the Savior saved us for himself, right? We are his bondservants. We are to submit in all things and in all ways to his lordship, right? A disciple is someone who is a follower of another, and who is willing to submit to that person or that thing in every single way. Not in just select ways of your life, but in the fullness of obedience and submission to that, other one, to that individual. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to submit to him fully and completely in all things. The sanctification process is us figuring out from God's word and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit where we are still denying Christ's lordship in our life. So we look to his word to find out what we need to confess, what we need to turn in repentance of. Next, Jesus redeemed us and empowered us. Right? He didn't just save us and repurpose us 
and say, okay, you got to try harder. He empowered us. The Great Commission tells us that Christ has all authority, and he's given that to us. Jesus is the one who paid for us. He's the one who acquired us, so he redeemed us. He's the one who actually was the one who made that sin debt payment for us on the cross, and he actually empowered us. We've been united with Christ both in his death and in his resurrection, right? We're baptized into a life of repentance, not empowered by our own strength, but empowered for bond servanthood by his strength, the spirit of Christ living within us. Next, Jesus called us to make disciples, right? So often we think of the Great Commission as that we're all a bunch of evangelists, and we are. We're all to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, and we think that it's just so that people might be saved. But Jesus has called us to make disciples. We're not only called to be disciples, that is, fully submissive and obedient to God, but to make disciples. We're to teach others to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Right? We're to teach that, preach to ourselves this message, and we're to teach it to others. And Paul, in his epistles and his letters, he constantly exhibits this for us. He exhibits the disciple-making ministry, the heart for others. He states his new life purpose in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. We won't turn there this morning, but let me read it for you. It says, him, this is Jesus, Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. No one's excluded from that warning. No one's excluded from um, the teaching warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. When does this discipleship stop? When everyone is mature in Christ. What does it mean to be mature in Christ? When we've attained the fullness of Christ Jesus himself. Pastor uh, Joe just told us, Philippians 1.6, that God is the one who does that. He's faithful and just. He's the one who's going to continue working on us. But that's not done until the day of completion when we're in our glorified bodies with Christ. So while we're here on earth, the discipleship does not end. Continuing on in Colossians 1, Paul then states this, For this I toil, presenting everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Just like beginning of Colossians that I read this morning, all the he's and the hymns, it's all about Jesus. Paul reminds us at the end of that chapter, this I toil, struggling with his energy. So it's Christ's energy that Christ powerfully works within you and within me. Two questions. What, who is called to be a disciple-making disciple? Right? You might say, well, I, I'm not really a disciple, or I'm not the intellect who can, who can point people to the Scriptures and walk through all these passages. Well, if you are empowered by the Spirit of God, um, we have that promise from God that if we pray for wisdom, He's going to give it to us. But if the Spirit of God is living within you, the Spirit Himself is your helper, He's your teacher, and He will equip you to be a disciple-making disciple. Titus chapter 2, if we look there in our text this morning. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 2 this morning, says this. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So who's called to be a disciple-making disciple? Older men. Who's, who's an older man here this morning? Whatever that means. I don't know what that means right? So older men are included. Who else might be included? Well, if we continue reading in Titus 2, we see that both older women and young women are included. It reads this way, older women likewise, 
meaning like the older men. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much, to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. They're to teach what is good and to train others. For what purpose? That they would be right reflections of who Christ is, that God's word would not be a stumbling block. Just like Pastor Tom um, encouraged us this morning, if we're always pointing to something and crying wolf, we're a wrong representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God's word says. Likewise, in all of our actions to the rest of the world, we need to be honoring to the truth of what God's word says, what it commands, that we would walk the word. Second question, what does a disciple of Jesus look like in the world? Right? So if we're to be, oh, no, I missed younger men. Let's go back. Titus 2, 6, one simple sentence says this, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, Paul has been building on this, right? There's so many likewise. He started with some some more in-depth explanation to the older men. He went to the, young, to the older women, younger women, and then he follows it up. Younger men, likewise you. Need, you need to be self-controlled. The best way to think of self-controlled is that yourself is dead, right? We've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I, it's no longer you who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. And we live through Christ by faith, the same fight that the same faith that saved us is the same faith that sanctifies us and supplies everything that we need for a life of godliness through the Spirit and through the Word. So the second question, what does this disciple of Jesus look like to the world? If we are these disciples of Jesus, we're going to be um, reflecting Christ. We're going to be his conduits to the rest of the world. So what does it actually actually look like to the world? Titus chapter 2, 9 through 10. We're going to read through it, but I want to remind you guys that Christ was the one who redeemed us, right? He's the one who purchased us. And as I read earlier from Titus, he's the one who purchased us for a purpose, right? We're called to be his disciples. We're called to submit to his lordship in all ways and in all things of life. So this picture of bond servanthood, we often think of, well, this is, a, this is to slaves or to workers, but it's to each and every one of us, brothers and sisters, because we are bond servants of Christ Jesus, the Lord. Titus 2, 9 through 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. We're to be submissive to Christ in absolutely everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not to steal the, the small cheap things, the, the, the things of the gospel that we want to cling to and the that are the low-hanging fruit, if you will. We want to dig deep into God's word. We want to be faithful to all things. Bondservants are to be showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. We are his ambassadors. We're Christ's ambassadors. The term Christian is little Christ, Right? We are little Christ to the world. Yet Christ is living within us. He dwells within us. We've been united to Christ. We have the hope of what we have been saved from. So let's not walk in that. Let's not continue to walk in the sinfulness. 
Let's not identify ourselves as to who we were before Christ, but let's be mindful of who we are now in Christ Jesus, and let's live it out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are the one who began the relationship within us by saving us, Lord, by calling us, by convicting us of sin, by giving your spirit to renew us, to repurpose us, to give us a whole new heart. Lord, you have fashioned with us all new desires. Lord, help us not to return to the, to the ways of old. Lord, help us to cling to Christ and to look to him in times of temptation. Lord, help us to flee circumstances of life that we have control over that will not be pleasing to you. Help us to consider how you would involve us in the discipleship of others. Lord, that starts with being faithful as a disciple of Jesus Christ in our own personal walk. Lord, we consider the the disciplines of grace of spending time at your feet in your word. Lord, we consider the discipline of grace of um, communicating with you. Lord, we call that prayer. Lord, it's not only making petitions to you, it's it's confessing sin, it's praising you, it's, it's adoring you, it's worshiping you. Father, help us to be a church that is found faithful in all things and in all ways. Lord, that we would be a church that represents Christ rightly and fully. Lord, that we would never be a stumbling block to anyone's coming to faith or perseverance in the faith. Father, as we prepare at the end of our service to go into a time of fellowship, I pray that the, the talk would be edifying, that it would be encouraging, Lord, but that you would be instilling upon each and every one of us ways that we can serve the body of Christ. Lord, Lord not only in ways of helps or administration, but in ways of discipleship, how we can minister the, to the needs of their soul today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you've given us in Christ Jesus. Amen.